Okay. Oh, good afternoon. Let's try that again. Good afternoon. Hey, there we're here. We're there. We're there. Um, great. Um, my name's Bob. I'm one of the team at the church and uh, love, absolutely love being part of this church and seeing all that God's doing here. Um, we are, uh, Tabs and our little family are here. Um, here. Libby's not in the kids' work for some reason, but that's okay. I've just noticed uh, she's down here eating an apple. Anyway, uh, um, but anyway, we're loving being part of this church. And uh, this is an amazing passage that we've got to unpack to, uh, this afternoon. I won't speak for, for too long, but we'll just try and dig into a little bit of what um, I think the Lord might be saying to us this afternoon through some of this stuff. So if you've got a Bible and it's helpful to have it open, I'm going to refer back to the passage a few times. So it might just be helpful to have that or have it out on your phone, but there's no need uh, to have that at all. But uh, if you've been following along with us, uh, we, we're at this moment in the... Um, in the Gospel of John. So John is a book uh, written by a guy called John about the life of Jesus, one of the four Gospels. But John's style and the way that he writes is different from the other Gospels. And we're kind of, sort of uh, like following it through, touching on a few things. Last week, Sam spoke on this encounter which Jesus had with uh, a woman at a well in Samaria. So Jesus was outside of the place where uh, he, he normally sort of does his ministry. And he starts speaking to this, um, this Samarian lady who isn't... Uh, really supposed to get in on what Jesus is doing but Jesus invites her in and uh, we had this amazing encounter well worth listening to on Spotify Um, anyway this week Jesus travels on uh, back to the place where he turned water into wine the text tells us he's going back to this place in Cana in Galilee and when he gets there, uh, the news about him is kind of spreading. There's that Jesus is here. He's doing some miracles. He's been in Jerusalem, like the major city. And, and the news has spread that Jesus is doing amazing miracles, that when people encounter him, their lives are utterly, radically transformed and changed. Whether it's being set free from something, whether it's being healed from something, whether it's just uh, Jesus speaking into their lives in such a powerful way that things completely transform and are changed. The word is out that Jesus is on the move. Jesus is doing stuff. And, um, and, and this man who we encounter uh, in this passage has obviously picked up and heard a whisper of this Jesus uh, who is working miracles in great power all across uh, the land. So uh, that's what's going on. This, this royal official that we kind of hear about, he's likely to work for King Herod. And um, he, we don't know if he's a Jew or a Gentile, where he kind of stands on that front, but he's working really for the enemy. And so he's kind of standing in societies, a lot like the Samaritan woman that we met last week, where he doesn't really fit into the picture of what, God's, of what Jesus is doing. Okay, the way that everyone else kind of saw it. He's an outsider. In fact, probably more viewed as a traitor in, in, by the people, the Jewish people at the time. So him coming to Jesus is a big deal. And a really big deal that he's doing it in public as well. So, verse 47 says this. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. So there's obviously this moment here where Jesus, approach, uh, where Jesus is approached by this man. And it's the, the words that are used, he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. There's like an urgency and a desperation in this man who's come up to Jesus from a place called Capernaum. Now Capernaum is 20 miles away. So he's had a long walk to get to Jesus. All uphill apparently. But he's hoping that Jesus can do something about the fever that is about to take his son's life. 
There's emotion and there's desperation in this moment. And Jesus, if you, if you read the text, verse 48, Jesus replies with this man in such a desperate, like, emotional moment with what feels to you and me, if, if you read it the same way I do, as like quite a harsh response. Jesus' reply to this man is, verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Now, if, if you're like me, that might surprise you. You know, you hear we, we talk about Jesus, you know, being the very love or the essence of love, the love of God, come to be made known to us, to demonstrate the love of God to us. And these words can feel like they kind of, they go against that in a way. But just unpicking some of the language around it, just, just to reassure you, Jesus actually isn't speaking directly to this man. That he is speaking to a crowd of people who are around this man. Okay, so if you, if you look into the original Greek at the time, there's lots of, um, lots of like, uh, plural language, basically. It's like he's talking to this group, to this collective of people. And, and there's a collective of people around this man who want to see the signs and the miracles that Jesus is doing in order for him to prove to them that he is who he says he is. If you go back uh, a little bit in your Bible, you don't, don't, you don't have to, but you can look at it later. Jesus has been in Jerusalem and he has cleared out the temple of loads of people who were cheating people out of money. Okay, he's cleared out this religious, this sort of like really symbolic place of all these like corrupt money changers. He's even made a whip and driven them out. It's like quite a harsh moment. And, and after he's done that, they, the people, they come to him and they, sit, they ask him um, uh, in chapter 2, verse 18, uh, what miraculous sign... Can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? So the people of the time see like his, that the authority of Jesus is going to be displayed in a sign or a, some miraculous thing. You show us that and we'll believe that you've got the authority to do this kind of thing. And that is flowing into this moment here. Everyone's looking around saying, oh yeah, go on then, show us a sign. Go on, prove who you are. That's what they want Jesus to do. And that's why Jesus' response feels quite harsh. It's like, unless the people see me do something right in their midst, they're not going to believe in who I am. Richard Dawkins, I've got a, a quote coming up. I think Toby's going to pop it up on the screen for me. Richard Dawkins, Dawkins says, that, says this in his book, The God Delusion. I cannot know for certain, but I think God is very improbable. And I live my life on the assumption that he is not there. Now, I look at that quote and I've got lots of problems with it. I don't know about you. But the people of the time, of, of the time that Jesus was in, think in such a similar way, I think, to the people of our time. That we sit next to in our lectures or we live next door to or we work alongside. That there's an assumption in our midst that God isn't there. God isn't real. And these people in this time are assuming that of Jesus. There's an assumption. You're not God. You can't be God. You're too familiar. You look just like everyone else. You speak just like everyone else in so many ways. They're looking at him thinking, you can't be God. But this man, this official, sees differently, doesn't he? He sees something of Jesus that is different. 
He has faith. A little bit of faith in who Jesus is. Now, faith is an amazing thing to look at through the Bible. That when people see God, they get faith. Okay? A vision of God is like the engine of faith. You see God and something happens in your spirit, in your faith. And this man has got a little vision of who Jesus is. Maybe not the whole picture, but a little vision of Jesus is, of who Jesus is. Hebrews 11 is an amazing chapter in the Bible to go to if you want to learn about faith. The first, the opening line of Hebrews chapter 11 says this about faith. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. And then in verse 6 of that same chapter it says, and without faith it's impossible to please God. Without faith it's impossible to please God. Isn't that amazing to think about for a minute? That the thing that puts a smile on God's face when he looks at you is not your list of achievements. It's the posture of trust in your heart towards him. That's what puts a smile on his face. The posture of trust in your heart towards him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The crowd around Jesus doesn't have faith, but this man does. And I just want to point out three things, three aspects of his faith that we can see, okay, in the passage, and then we'll pray. Number one, he moves towards Jesus in response to his need, okay? He moves towards Jesus in response to his need. It's not very clear from the passage. In fact, if you read, read about it, lots of people think lots of different things about what this man actually believes. Whether he can see fully who Jesus is or whether there's just a little glimpse of a vision of who Jesus is that this man has. But he does seem to have a real genuine belief that Jesus could save his son, right? I mean, we could see he takes a journey of 20 miles uphill when his son is in such a desperate place. There is a genuine belief in this man that Jesus could do something. And instead of uh, doing something else in, in, uh, with maybe what could be the last few days of his son's life, he chooses to go to Jesus. He, he doesn't put his faith in other doctors or magicians or miracle workers that might be work, you know, moving around at the time. He goes for Jesus. He chooses Jesus. There is an element to his faith that we can see already in that. He moves towards Jesus in response to his need. Faith begins with moving towards Jesus in response to your need. It says, verse 47, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son. He vocalizes this need as well. Sir, come down before my child dies. The word child there is like my little one, my, my little one. It's like, it's really sort of like intimate um, language, like, like parental language, like please, please come down. He's going to die. He moves towards Jesus in response to his need. Now, recently, uh, I've, I've, um, we've been doing the Alpha course at church. Um, just give me a little whoop if you're on the Alpha course or you visited. A few. Okay, great. Okay. Uh, maybe we're just quiet. Anyway, uh, the Alpha course has been amazing. All right. Um, it's just been so wonderful to be part of it. Uh, and to Pete and Jenny leading it and the team. Um, and one, I've, I've asked permission to share this story, but there's a guy doing the Alpha course right now who has, um, he came last year 
uh, and to the Alpha Course where Nathan was sharing his story. And uh, Nathan was, um, Nathan Hill, if you know him in the church, was sharing his amazing story of how God had changed his life. Anyway, this guy's friends with Nathan, and he comes along, and uh, we had a lovely chat. He's a lovely guy. But I could see from the look on his face, he was here to support Nathan and not really anything else. You know, they're like the shields were up, as it were. Um, you ever, ever experienced that? Yeah, where you sort of, you get the idea, hang on, you know, I'm here to su- support Nathan. Anyway, uh, this term, this guy uh, shows up in the first week of Alpha. And I'm like, hey, Zach, how are you doing? Um, we started having this chat. And the warmth that came back off Zach was entirely different. And it was suddenly like, whoa, Zach is uh, in a different place. And we had this conversation, and Zach lives in the room opposite Nathan. And Zach said to me, uh, I've seen Nathan change entirely over the last two years. I've seen his life utterly transformed, and I want what he's got. That's faith. That's faith, yeah. And he's got a glimpse, a little vision of who Jesus is, and he's moved towards Jesus, just like this man. That is faith. That is part of faith. More to come on that story. Maybe you heard Val's story last week. Give Val a little whoop. She's down here. Val had this story last week. It's an amazing story of needing a hip replacement, of going on a list that was two years long on the NHS to get a hip replacement while she was in a lot of pain. And she told us this story of how uh, things had got worse and worse in, in the midst of her pain. And, uh, and eventually she was chatting with a friend who said, you should make a fuss now. You're in, you're in need. And Val told us the story of how uh, she'd made a phone call and uh, been, in the midst of all that, been praying and praying and praying that God might do something to this two-year-long waiting list. She made one phone call. And I think within like a matter of weeks, the next day, the next day, she's notified. She's got a pre-op appointment and she's going in. This is just like a month before Christmas or something, wasn't it? She's going before Christmas to get her new hip. Now, Val, in that moment, when she couldn't do anything, she moves towards Jesus. She gets praying. She gets on her knees. That's what she told us last week. That's all she knew to do was to pray. Do you know what else I found out Val did? Was Val had been saving some money, and uh, she had some money saved when she thought she might go private on that appointment uh, for, that, for that hip replacement to have. She's given me permission to share. But she gave some of that money to the church when it was, still is facing a bit of a financial struggle. In faith that God could do something, even in the midst of her giving away her means to make something happen herself. And, uh, and I think God honored that vow in an amazing way. You know, when you see what you answer to, to your prayers, that God saw what you did and he loved it. And I think God honored what you did. So um, thank you for that. That is an amazing testimony that we carry now together as a church. Val, in that moment, moved towards Jesus. That's faith. Number two, what else does this man do where we see faith? He responds to Jesus' words with his actions. Okay, he, he, he responds with his body, with his actions, with his movements. Jesus says in verse 50, go, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. It sounds like a pretty instantaneous thing that happened there, doesn't it? He took Jesus at his word and he went. 
James chapter 2, verse 17 says this, Faith by itself, if, not, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Well, this man shows us what living faith looks like. Faith accompanied by action. He has a glimpse of who Jesus is and he responds to it with his whole being, his whole life. He took Jesus at his word. I was going to share, a, um, in fact, I will, I will quickly if we've got time. I think we've got time. I'm going to share from, um, a little story from one of my favorite books, um, which is going to come up next. Anyone ever read God Smuggler before? Yeah, a few of us? Okay, can I just, if you haven't read this book, you need to read this book, okay? Available on Apple Books, probably on Kindle as well, I imagine. A uh, little plug by a guy called Brother Andrew, who passed away sadly last year. Um, but Brother Andrew went to, as a, as a young man, he went to a, a Bible school in Scotland, in Glasgow. And uh, I think we've got a picture of the, the Bible school, or the outside of it. Um, this, was, this was it. Uh, over the, the entrance of the Bible school, uh, these words, have faith in God. Let me just read you this story of his experience of faith. The weeks passed so fast that soon it came time for me to head out on the first of several training trips in evangelism. So he's heading out in to do some evangelism. You're going to like this, said Mr. Dinan. It's an exercise in trust. The rules are simple. Each student on your team is given one pound banknote. Now, this is obviously set a little while ago. Um, don't have those anymore. Uh, and with that, you go on your missionary tour through Scotland. You're expected to pay for your own transportation, your own lodging, your food, any advertising you want to do, the renting of halls, the providing of refreshments, all on that one pound note. And worse than that, when you get back to school after four weeks, you're expected to pay back the pound. I laughed, he said. Sounds like we'll be passing the hat all the time. Oh, uh, you're not allowed to take up collections, never. You're not to mention money at your meetings, all of your needs, have got to be provided without any manipulation on your part, or the experiment is a failure. Now, I was a member of a team of five boys, and later, when I tried to reconstruct where our funds came from during those four weeks, it was hard to do so. It seemed that what we needed was always just there. Sometimes a letter would arrive from one of the boys' parents with a little money, and sometimes we would get a check in the mail from a church that we visited days or weeks earlier. The notes that came with these gifts were always interesting. I know you don't need money, or you would have mentioned it, someone would write, but God just wouldn't let me go to sleep tonight until I'd put this in an envelope for you. Contributions came frequently in the form of produce. In one town in the highlands of Scotland, we were given 600 eggs. We had eggs for breakfast, eggs for lunch, eggs as hors d'oeuvres before dinner of eggs with an egg white meringue dessert. It was weeks before we could look a chicken in the eye. <laughs> but money or produce, we stuck fast to our two rules. We never mentioned a need aloud, and we gave away a tithe of whatever came to us as soon as we got it, within 24 hours if possible. So just giving away 10% of whatever comes in. There were times before the end of the tour, however, when it looked as, it looked as though the experiment was failing. One weekend, we were holding meetings in Edinburgh, we attracted a large group uh, of young people the first day, and we were looking, about, looking for a way to get them to come back the next day. Suddenly, without consulting anyone, one of the team members stood up and made an announcement. Before the meeting tomorrow, he said, 
we'd like you all to have tea with us here. Four o'clock. How many think you can make it? A couple of dozen hands went up and we were committed. At first, instead of being delighted, the rest of us were horrified. All of us knew that we had no tea, we had no cake, no bread, no butter, and, exactly f- and we had exactly five cups. Nor did we have the money to buy these things. Our last, last penny had gone on the rent of the hall. This was going to be a real test of God's care. And for a while, it looked as though he was going to provide everything through the young people themselves. Because after the meeting, several of them came forward and said they would like to help. One offered milk, another half a pound of tea, another sugar. One girl even offered to bring the dishes. Our tea was rapidly taking shape. But there was one thing still missing, the cake. Without cake, these Scottish boys and girls wouldn't consider tea, tea. So that night, in our evening prayer time, we put the matter before God. Lord, we've got ourselves into a spot. Anyone ever prayed that one? Yep, me too. From somewhere, we've got to get a cake. Will you help us? And that night, as we rolled up in our blankets on the floor of the hall, we played a guessing game. How was God going to give us the cake? Among the five of us, we guessed everything imaginable, or so we thought. Morning arrived. We half expected a heavenly messenger to come to our door bearing a cake, but no one came. The morning mail arrived. We ripped open the two letters, hoping for money, but there was none. A woman from a nearby church came, to see by, to, came by to see if she could help. Cake was on the tip of all our tongues, but we swallowed the word and shook our heads. Everything, we assured her, is in God's hands. The tea had been announced for four o'clock in the afternoon, and at three, the tables were set, but we still had no cake. 3.30 came. We put the water to boil. 3.45, and the doorbell rang. All of us ran together to the big front entrance, and there was the postman, and in his hand was a large box. Hello, lads, said the postman. Got something for you that feels like a food package. He handed the box to one of the boys. The delivery day is actually over, he said, but I I hate to leave a perishable package overnight. We thanked him profusely, and the minute he closed the door, the uh, the boy solemnly handed me the box. It's for you, Andrew. It's from Mrs. William Hopkins in London. I took the package and carefully unwrapped it. Off came the twine, off came the brown paper outside, and inside there was no note, only a large white box. And deep in my soul, I knew that I could afford the drama of lifting the lid slowly. (laughs) And as I did, there, in perfect condition, to be admired by five sets of wandering eyes, was an enormous, glistening chocolate cake. Now, he calls that the royal way, living by faith. That's the, cha- the title of the chapter, and I love that chapter. Whenever I'm feeling like I'm lacking a bit of faith, I read that chapter, The Royal Way. It will stir you to trust God with everything you've got, to move towards him, and to move in response to his word, what he tells you in it. Lastly, faith looks like surrendering everything to Jesus. Surrendering everything to Jesus. What happens at the end of this story? We're told 
in verse 53, so he and his whole household believed. So he and his whole household believed. He moves towards Jesus because of a need. He responds by trusting Jesus at his word with his actions. And then the picture unfolds. He sees his son. He meets the the, um, the servants out on the road who come to tell him, your son is well. He's he's fine. He's going to live. You know, can you imagine the joy and just the overwhelming sense of like complete and utter gratitude to this man who said your son's going to live and you know he's living. You're going to see him again, your little boy. And what happens as a result of that is that they give their lives completely to Jesus. told you about Zach earlier, didn't I? Zach, who last week before communion, just out there, um, decided to surrender his life to Jesus, to give his life wholly to Jesus, pray with Nathan and Pete and Tim, and said, "I, I believe in who Jesus is, and I want to give my life to him. I want to surrender who I am. So faith, it looks like moving towards Jesus in response to a need. It looks like taking Jesus at his word with our whole beings, our whole lives. And it looks like surrendering our lives to him. That's faith. That's what this man shows us in the scriptures. That's what Jesus responds to in this man. It's this journey of faith. Amen? Amen.